Well, I hope you've worshipped this morning, and uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us in those great songs, preparing our hearts, and we want to continue in a heart of worship, even now as we open the word to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Um, you know, I was thinking about there, there are a lot of good things in this world. Uh, coffee is one of the best, right? <laughs> Apparently, I've been told there is a level of caffeination needed to endure uh, one of my sermons. You can get it from coffee or uh, Mountain Dew uh, or any number of things. Many good things, but most good things, you can get too much of it, right? Even, did you know you can even get drink too much water? You can drink too much water. That is uh, possible. It can actually kill you. One thing that we can never get enough of, one good thing we can never overconsume or be unhealthy because we get too much of is joy. We need it. Today we continue along in this encouraging book, the letter to the Philippians, Paul's probably most encouraging letter to a church about finding joy and living daily, moment by moment, with Christian joy. This passage that we're going to look at today, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, contains some really practical and pointed and personal instructions along the path of enduring joy. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, which will be our focal text today. He writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or arguments, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world." holding firmly to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I can take pride because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Here we find what I'm calling three signposts pointing us along the path of the Christian calling that leads to ultimate joy. Two of the signposts, if you will, are positive, saying, yes, this is the way, and one signpost is a warning. This is not the way. This is a pitfall. For those of you who are note-takers or like to follow along, three words that represent the three major signposts. Number one, Godliness. Number two is the warning, and it is grumbling. And number three, it is gift. Gift. Godliness, grumbling, and gift. So let's look back now at verses 12 and 13 about what I'm calling godliness. And here in the beginning of this text, we see that we are called to cooperate with God in his serious sanctifying work. We are called as Christians to cooperate with God in his serious sanctifying work. Paul says this, he says, 
you folks, he loves this church. And he says, y'all have been so obedient to follow the teaching of Christ that I have shared with you. And in my, in my presence, you have been obedient. But now even more in my absence, obey. Obedience to God is a mark of the true disciple. It comes from a love for God, a love for Christ. The Bible teaches that. Jesus taught that you will obey my commandments because you love me, because I have loved you. And so Paul is encouraging them, love Christ so much that it flows forth in obedience to God. Not to please me, not to please men. Oh, maybe that's where we begin in the Christian walk. We have someone who's mentoring us in the faith, someone who has shared Christ. And so we look at them and they say, well, this is the way we're taught to walk. This is the way they do it, so I'm going to do it. But he says, as you grow, what you see is you're not obeying to please me or your leaders, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor. Do it for God. Obey even in my absence. So he's teaching obedience. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. We saw that in looking at that Christ's psalm about how he left the glories of heaven to do, to obey the will of the Father, even though it took him to the cross. And God highly exalted him. And so he says, now in the same way, you obey God, just like Jesus did. And then he gives us a provocative phrase. He says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Now what he does not say is, work for your salvation. In other words, he doesn't say work to earn your salvation. He says work out your own salvation. We do see in that that now there is a personal responsibility given pertaining somehow to our salvation. And there are a lot of weeds we could get into on this thing, but let me just say what's clear is that there is a personal responsibility in view here. Now, when we think about salvation, the word uh, soteria or is, is, can be translated deliverance. When we hear the word salvation, almost automatically as evangelicals, as Baptists, we think about someone's conversion to Christ. That is, when they move from the point of darkness to light, it is when someone repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe we think about their justification. It is a point in time in which there is repentance and faith. We believe the slate is wiped clean, we're forgiven of all of our sins, and we come into the family of God. We as Baptists always generally think about that point in time conversion or justification. But listen, folks, the Bible views a much bigger swath when it talks about salvation. Certainly, justification is a part of it, that initial conversion experience. But the Bible would hold out salvation or deliverance is everything that God does and everything that we cooperate in and taking us from sinners and lost all the way up to the point of our glorification. We receive resurrected bodies and we are with God forever in the eternal state. All of that is salvation. So it would be a mistake to only think when he says, work out your own salvation, he has in mind that point in time in which someone's converted. I think most likely we should understand, work out your own salvation would view what we call sanctification. It is now that we have come to Christ and we love him and his spirit abides with us and we are growing and learning and God is transforming us more into the image of Christ. And that is supposed to happen throughout our lives until 
we receive our final reward. So, work out your own salvation. Understand that you have a personal responsibility to cooperate with God in his sanctifying work, changing you more into the image of Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if you walked into a gym and you sat down and ate cookies and all of a sudden your body was transformed? Or you just sat there and you said, man, I'm just soaking up the ambience and I can feel my muscles rippling. It, It doesn't happen that way. You work out. There are weights there. You have to pick them up. So, I think we get off in either ditch on this thing, but I know this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is serious business. It is not to be overlooked or disregarded. God is serious about our holiness and making us more like Christ as Christians. But here's the good news. He says God is at work within you, both to will and to empower or to do what is pleasing to him. In other words, actually, God is the decisive mover here. When you are saved, he gives you his spirit, and his spirit nudges you to will, that is to want what he wants. As you grow and you learn from the scriptures and you see what Jesus is like and you see the disparity between where you are and where Jesus is and where he would have you to be, that is often the spirit convicting us that, hey, you are not where you need to be. And so the spirit nudges us along to want or to will to do the will of God. And then he empowers us to do it. I love what John Piper calls this. He's got a sermon on this passage, and he calls it, I act the miracle. In other words, God has given us supernatural power and his spirit to do it, to accomplish it, but we have to act. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Samuel Bringle beautifully said, the axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. The spiritual leader of today, in all probability, is one who yesterday expressed his humility by working gladly and faithfully in second place. That is to say, the Christian who is obedient to this is the one who sees themselves as a vessel or tool for the master's hands and longs to be used by the master and allows the master to use him or her for his purposes. Godliness, that is the path to joy. We think godliness is somehow a list of don't do's. And it's confining. And this is man, God is at work in you to will and to do. Cooperate with him. Submit yourself, humble yourselves before God to be used of him. So, God has a serious sanctifying work to do in each of us, and we're called to be a part of it. Verses 14 through 16, here is the second signpost signified by the word grumbling. And we see in this that we're called to be children of God, cleansed and shining brightly in the world. But there is something that can darken our light. 
There is a rebuke here for the Philippian church. Look at it again, verses 14 through 16. It's both negative and positive, the rebuke, but then there's the positive side. You know, we can't live. I said it's not just a list of don'ts. Well, there are some don'ts, but there are don'ts and then do's. Look at what he says. Do all things without complaining or argument so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Let's stop right there for just a minute. I think here is a warning. Along the path, don't fall into this hole. Don't fall into this pit, this quicksand, because it is difficult to get out. But if you're out, or if you're in that pit, by God's grace, come out. The warning about grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That phrase right there is reminiscent of something. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament Jews, the Israelites, when they've been brought out of Egypt. Listen, they've been crying out to God for 430 years, save us from this bondage and slavery. And God miraculously does it in such a way that no one else could get the glory. God brings them out of their bondage. And it's amazing how quickly their gladness turns into griping and grumbling and questioning. I mean, just as soon as they face the slightest hardship, difficulty, question, or threat, or discomfort, what do they do? Gripe, complain, question their leaders, question their provision, question the food that God is feeding them. They even question the taste of the water. God, I don't really like this water. I prefer Avion. This is a little bitter. I taste a little chlorine in this water. This tastes like lake water. Isn't there better water? Man, we sure do miss the cucumber salad back in Egypt when we were slaves. And it seems like nothing could please them. And I think when we hear this, do not grumble and argue, question, complain. We need to see the seriousness of this sin. And I I don't think we do. I I know I don't. It just seems like we're astute when we find all the things we could nitpick or gripe about or go wrong. We need to see the seriousness of the sin of grumbling and disputing. We need to see the stain, the horrific stain that it leaves in our hearts and in the church and among the people that we encounter. It's been very convicting for me. Um, (laughs) I've been studying on this all week and then we went to a little competition uh, yesterday and uh, I tell you it didn't go our way and the first thing I started doing was grumbling, griping, politics whatever and and all of that and I'm like see it's it's just there It's, it's in me and it's my gut response to hardship or when things aren't exactly as I would have them to be. And so we grumble. And we take a situation that was, it was actually a good situation. And that's what some, some of uh, uh, our friends said, you know, but we had a good time together. I was like, oh, good, good time. Good time. Yeah, good times here. <laughs> but there were those that were trying to help me see there, there was actually a lot of good in this thing. 
But I, I only wanted to focus on the loss or the thing that didn't go my way. And the crazy thing about complaining and arguing and griping is it makes us bitter. It really is a corrosive, terrible thing for our souls and our minds. Next thing you know, not only were the judges, you know, bribed probably. This McDonald's Big Mac is horrible. Cost too much. Man, gas is too high. Man, tell my wife, you don't, man, stop drinking your drink when you're going around curves. And it's just like everything. And it snowballs in my heart. And it leaves a bitter root that branches out and touches everything. And here's the thing about grumbling and questioning. It knows no bounds. It's like a virulent virus that is not happy to be harbored in the individual soul, but it has to be spewed out, and it infects other people. It's not happy in isolation. And so the next thing you know, that person joins in, and that person joins in, and man, aren't we a fine sight to behold. Thanklessness, ingratitude, inability to see all of the good, because one thing didn't go my way. And maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's a big thing that didn't go my way. <clears throat> Could it be that God has a plan in that? Could it be that God is doing something in our losses and hardships and disappointments? Absolutely. It is a very small view of God that thinks he needs to be removed from his throne because things haven't gone the way that I think. So grumbling and disputing and always questioning everything, especially in the church. But it says actually here in all things. In all things, don't grumble and complain. Because grumbling and complaining in the bitter heart of ingratitude and thanklessness, it can't be confined to one area of our life. If we do it at the workplace, we're going to do it in the home place. If we do it at the home place, we're going to do it in the church place. And so in all things, he says, don't grumble and complain and question. And I think this has to do with uh, the people that God has put in authority and in charge and over things, but I think it also has to do with our view of God. Because ultimately, when the Israelites griped about Moses and the provision, they were griping about God and his provision and his providence and his care for them. And so it's a sin that needs to be laid aside. Confessed, repented of, and to ask God and help me in this. Because God is at work both to will and to do what is pleasing to him. He will help us. We're promised grace when we lay sin aside. And so the church is encouraged to repent and to take on the purity, to leave behind the stained clothing that they have apparently taken on there in Philippi. Shine brightly. He says, man, the world is dark. We live in a twisted and perverse generation, and that's true of all generations, okay? And what he's talking about is those outside the kingdom. He says, you're supposed to be like a shining light or star set ablaze by God in hopefulness, in joy, 
and gladness over what God has done for you. And you're supposed to shine. But has your light been eclipsed by sin? Have you forgotten the goodness of God? Have you lost your hope and lost your faith? See, the Philippians were facing some very hard things, as we've discovered along the way. They're being persecuted, threatened, imprisoned. Some may be killed. We don't know what's going to happen. Their fear has come, joylessness, loss of faith, and all of these things. And he says, man, don't give in to fear and grumbling and griping and doubt. Shine brightly. Continue to shine bright in your hardship. Don't be stained by the sins that are common in the world. The last thing, the last sign along the way in verses 17 and 18 is what I call gift. Or maybe we could say giving. And this sign reminds us that we as Christians are called to embrace self-giving as the path to lasting joy. Self-giving is the path of true joy. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. He says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul refers here to the sacrifice of his very life for the Christian cause, for the missionary effort to make Christ known he said, I'm like a drink offering poured out on an altar. Listen, listen to this. Paul says, I, I, I'm being poured out. Maybe he's bleeding as he writes these things. I don't know. It's like I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the altar. An altar, church at Philippi, upon which you, your flesh, your life is being sacrificed apparently as well. And so he envisions this Old Testament sacrificial system that God had given the Old Testament Jews where the worshiper came. And because they knew God, they obeyed his commands. And they came as worshipers and they took an animal, a valuable animal that could be used for nourishing food, it could be used for a feast or it could be used as a valuable breeding animal. And they took this valuable animal and they killed it and laid it upon the altar as a joyful sacrifice, which in essence, when it came from the heart, said knowing God and being among God's people is far more valuable than this animal, than the money, than the food, that it provides. And then there was this libation or drink offering that would be, it was wine, it would be poured out on the altar over that animal sacrifice. Wine in the Old Testament celebrates what? Uh, symbolizes celebration and joy as a path to joy. And so the worshiper with the drink offering would take that drink, which might otherwise have been used for celebration and joy, and pours it out over that animal sacrifice as a drink offering. And Paul envisions all of that and applies it, and he says, it's like y'all, in your sacrificial service and faith, you're just like that act of worship. And I'm a part of that, and we're being poured out together. And then, astoundingly, he says this, <laughs> ain't it great? He says, I'm joyful in this. 
And it really begs the question, what is worth giving your life to? What is worth living our life for? What is it that is really ultimately of greatest value? Because I know there's a lot of things we can live our life for and give our lives for that ultimately don't really matter. When we die, it's over. No eternal significance whatsoever. But as Christians, we've been given this hope and this calling to make Christ known because it is the path that leads people to life and joy. And we're to give ourselves for that as worshipers. Living sacrifice, Romans 12 says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. This is very convicting to me because I'm reminded how quickly we pick ourselves up off the altar and begin to live, I begin to live for worldly things and don't want to give of myself. But God, that costs too much. Offer yourselves a living sacrifice. Lewis Hyde, in his book, The Gift, he grapples with the idea of artistry and creating things as a gift to the world. And I gotta say, there's a lot in his book, I have no idea what it means. <laughs> it's, it's hard to understand. But uh, he talks about how, in theory, an artist is one who creates for the good of the world and gives it as a gift. Art can be very difficult to monetize or put a value on. And yet, some of the most valuable things in our world are these great treasures of art. And in his book, Hyde argues that in modern times, we view greatness with a dollar sign. In other words, what he says is, in our culture, in our pretty much modern times, and really this is fairly global these days, that a person's greatness is measured by what they attain or accumulate, especially monies, so that names like J.P. Morgan or Warren Buffett, those are great men. Those are big men. Those are great names because of the dollars that they accumulated. Now, is that not true? To some level, we would look at that and say, wow, yeah, that's impressive. Look at what they have accumulated. But what Hyde argues is, and he goes through some sociological things, and he says in a lot of cultures in the world, probably the better ones, greatness is not measured by what you accumulate, but by what you sacrifice and give to the world, to others. He says, he argues that giving of ourselves, not for money, but just to give, to truly sacrifice and give something beautiful is how community is formed. It is the only way in which society can ultimately work and the world is just a better place when we are givers. And he gives the example of the European explorers when they come over to what we call America today. And they encountered some natives. Of course, we used to call Indians, right? Natives or Indians. And he said it was amazing when these European explorers came, they encountered these Indians. And many of the, the first encounters were actually beautiful things. And they encountered these natives and, and they came, were invited in 
to their little lodge there and they were given a peace pipe or a pipe of tobacco to smoke with these natives. And then in a beautiful gesture, the natives or the Indians said, here, I want to give you this pipe. And so they were enthralled by that. They'd received a gift and they took that gift and they thought, man, this is a great artifact. Maybe we should send it back to Europe or put it up on our mantle. It's a gift that I have received. But to their surprise, not many days later, the Indians, natives, came knocking upon the door. And you know what? They were expecting to receive a gift. They were expecting to be handed a pipe for the gesture to be returned. And the explorers were incensed at this. Have you ever heard the phrase Indian giver? Hyde says that's where that phrase came from. These European explorers were were incensed that they would give us this pipe and now they want it back. What they didn't understand was these natives lived in a gift culture. It is what enabled everybody to live and thrive was the continual giving. I give to you, you give to me, and it was this beautiful, he argues, culture of hospitality and giving. Listen to this. And the explorers he says, came with a mindset of taking. Now, some of y'all are getting riled up right there. (laughs) Don't. My point is how we can get sucked into a mindset of being getters and not givers. And I really believe what Paul is arguing here and showing us is that the kingdom of God is a culture of sacrificial giving. That the true beauty of life is to be a worshiper, to give ourselves fully, completely, and wholly to God for his purposes. And then he uses us to touch other people and to shine brightly in a world without hope. A world that is all consumed with getting. And we see a counter-cultural revolution. We see Jesus giving up everything out of love and obedience to the Father and coming and giving it all. And God lifting it up and saying, that is beautiful. That is the culture of heaven. That is the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul says, hey, inasmuch as I'm being poured out like a libation offering, (laughs) don't feel sorry for me. Don't you cry for me. I do it out of joy. I do it because it is the path of joy. Now you, Philippian church, Share in that joy. Grab hold of this. That God's purposes include giving ourselves as worshipers for his kingdom. And so, Paul says, I'm on the journey of joy. And it may look like it ends in my death, that sacrifice, but really, that is the pathway in the door to the final place where joy is unending. There is no more death, sorrow, sadness, no more bickering, no more arguing. And we finally begin to understand the beautiful complexity of this thing that God is interweaving throughout history to bring about his kingdom. So my invitation to you today 
The invitation to me today, to us, is to look at the signs along the path to joy. Godliness, giving ourselves, cooperating with God and making us more like Christ so that we can shine. Laying aside, watching out for the pitfalls of grumbling and griping griping and questioning. At some point, folks, we just got to trust that God knows the best for us. And then, giving. Giving ourselves wholly, fully to the work that he's doing. Would you bow with me today? Mike's going to come, and in our invitation today is just to pick up on that song that we were singing and to sing and to worship, to offer ourselves to God afresh and anew today from the heart as worshipers. And this song itself is not what God requires. It's much deeper than this. It's a matter of the heart. Even as we were singing this morning, and maybe, maybe it's just God doing the work in me, but it seemed like there was just a sweet spirit in this place. The spirit of God beginning to crack open cold hearts. Maybe God wanting to heal divisions. Inviting each of us into his very presence to let bitterness, anger, disappointment, all of those things, just lay them down shed them along the roadside on the path to joy and to pick up pick up the mantle that Jesus has left for us to be worshipers to give ourselves radically to a world for God's sake out of love would you respond to God trusting in Christ following in the path of Christ as a worshiper would you lay down whatever claims to fame whatever glory you seek whatever treasures you're seeking that don't eternally matter lay those down and join him on his path let's sing let's pray let's worship let's respond today when the music fades all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that'll bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song for song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you jesus i'm sorry lord for the thing i made it 
When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for showing us the path of life, revealing by your word to our very eyes and hearts and minds a way that is different, a way that seems to lead down but it leads up, a way of self-sacrifice that actually leads to life abundant, the way of Jesus. I pray that you would help us as we seek to cooperate with you and enact the miracle of what you're doing, transforming us as flawed and broken, glory-seeking vessels into radically loving, God-honoring, Christ-exalting followers of the King. Help us, we pray, as we trust and obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.